going to continue our series in the Gospel of, of Luke this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord once more and ask for, for his help in the hearing and the preaching of his word. Father, your word is truth, so set us apart in truth. Lord, all week long, we live in a world that lies to us about everything, everything. Lord, we pray that as your word goes forth, that you would give each of us ears to hear truth. That your spirit would illumine your word to us and give us eyes to see that that light would shine in the darkness of our world and into our hearts and that we would know what is true and what is false. And that God, you would help us to be able to, to clearly distinguish between the voice of the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and the voice of the sinister wolf, the evil one. We pray that you would help us to not be deceived. And God, you would make us a people who, in the midst of the battle for our souls, that we would not yield to temptation. But we pray, as your Son taught us to pray, that you would lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Father, we pray that you would do that and help us to that end in our next few moments together as we study your word. God, give us help. Give me help. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Actually, the end of chapter 3. It's on page 859 in the Bibles that are provided for you there. If you didn't bring one, that's a gift from us to you. Page 859. Gospel of Luke. In another gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus, speaking of the devil, said that he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. And when he, the devil, lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. That's who Satan is. He is a liar. And we saw that even in, in that Genesis 3 scene that we read at the beginning of our, our time together, where Adam and Eve are in this perfect world that God had made, and God had said, Everything is yours except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And trust me, you don't want to know. The difference between good and evil. All you know is good right now. You don't want to know evil. You don't want to know about terrorism. You don't want to know about murder. You don't want to know about rape. You don't want to know about children's cancer wards. You don't want to know about having to live in a world where you lock your doors. You don't don't want to know. And Satan comes on the scene and says to Adam and Eve, did God really say? I mean, come on. Did did God really say? 
you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden, which is not what God said at all. God said you can eat of them all except for one. Satan loves to do that. He loves to highlight what you can't do and diminish what God says you can freely enjoy. And he and Eve have a dialogue, and then, you know, Eve says, we, we eat we will, or touch, and we will, we will die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. There's no accountability for the way you live. There's no impending judgment. God's not really holy. There's no hell. That's just a scare tactic to get you to do things. Does that sound familiar? We saw Eve, with Adam right next to her, saw that the tree was good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes. It was so pretty. It looked good. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate, and gave also some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate. This is what's known in the Bible as the fall where our first parents sinned in the garden. They traded God for a piece of fruit. And because of that, a curse came on them and on every human being who has ever been born since and who will ever be born. That we are born under the condemnation of sin. We are born not innocent and not neutral, but we are born sinners. That's why you don't have to teach a child to sin. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. They just come that way. All of us. And it shows up in various ways in our lives and throughout our lives. And we follow suit and do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. Because of that, there is a certain judgment. God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's why there's physical death, but there is also a certain spiritual death. That at the end of every person's life, there is a day of judgment. And that if you have sinned and have not had your sins forgiven by the provision that God gives in His Son, Jesus, you will die for eternity under His good and righteous wrath. That's sobering words. And also terrifying. And the rest of the Bible is all about how will God rescue us from that? Because the Bible says that God does not delight in the the death of the wicked. He wants to give mercy. He loves to give mercy. So how will He do it? Well, He will send a Savior, Christ the Lord. The Gospel of Luke is one of the accounts of this Savior, Jesus, and His life, and His death, and His resurrection, and the promised gospel that comes because of all of that. And this morning, as we are in the gospel of Luke, what we are going to see is we're going to see that Jesus comes to be what Adam was not. He is going to come to do something to reverse the curse, as it were, to fix fix our wounded souls and our wounded world. Our big idea this morning is this, that Jesus is the son of Adam who represents sinners and the son of God who rescues sinners. Jesus is the son of Adam who represents sinners and the son of God who rescues 
sinners. Last week we, we left off in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Jesus had been baptized there according to all righteousness and the Father spoke from heaven. The Spirit falls upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit does, and the Father speaks from heaven. He says, you are my beloved Son and with you I am well pleased. That's Luke chapter 3 verse 22. The Father declares from heaven, this is my Son, and I'm pleased in Him. And then what the author of uh, of this gospel does for us is he's going to show us that he is indeed the Son of God, yes, but he's also the Son of Adam. He is God, yes, but he is man as well, which is very important because Jesus is about to represent humanity in what he's going to do with the rest of his life. So in our time this morning, what we're going to do is we're going we're to look at three things. First, we're going to look at Jesus is the son of Adam, in this genealogy here in, in the end of chapter 3. Then secondly, we're going to see that Jesus, or I'm sorry, we're going to see that Satan tempts the son of God. So Jesus is the son of Adam. Satan tempts the son of God. And then thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus is our Savior in the midst of temptation. Jesus is our Savior in the midst of, of temptation. So look with me at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. What you'll see there is a phone book, basically. It's a, it's a roll call. It's a list of names. It's a family tree, right? There's 76 names there. I am not going to show my ignorance by trying to read them all. All right? I'm just not, I'm not, we're not going to do that. Not because it's unimportant, um, but, but I want to highlight some things here about why this is here. Because you'll, if you know, and if you've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll, you'll know that Matthew starts his Gospel with a genealogy as well. Both Matthew and Luke include this, and they both have different purposes. And also, if you've been reading, you probably noticed that there's, there's some differences in the genealogies, and I'm happy to give you some more resources to, to, to talk about all the discussions that go with that. Um, but, but we want to highlight here the, the reason that it's here. What, what the God of the Bible does is he makes promises to people, and then he traces his promises from person to person to person. That he keeps his word to his people from generation to generation, down through family lines, as it were. That's why you find so many genealogies through the Bible, because God is tracing his faithfulness from the Garden of Eden when he promised to send a Savior all the way up to the Gospel of Matthew and, and Luke, where we get our, really our last genealogy in the Bible to show he came. And God was faithful to bring the Savior that he promised to send. And both Matthew and Luke have different purposes in their genealogy. So, so Matthew's focus is to prove to the Jewish audience that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and of David to show that he's qualified to be the king of Israel. But Luke here has a different focus. His focus is to show the Gentile audience, the non, non-Jewish audience, that Jesus associates with all of humanity as a son of Adam. He's, he's indeed the son of God, but he's also the son of Adam, which is important because he is going to represent us in the same way that Adam represented us 
in the garden. So look at verse 22. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So he's actually a stepson. And then you're just going to notice here, there's a few names that might stand out to you. A lot of them you probably don't know, me neither. Verse 27, though, you have the son of Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel, was a, uh, he led the Jewish community after the exile in Haggai. And God made a promise uh, about Zerubbabel that one from his line would come to rule. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Then you notice down in verse 33, the son of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Then verse 30. Four, the son of Jacob, son of Isaac, uh, son of Abraham. Verse 36, the son of Shem, of the Semitic people. I get the name Semitic from Shem. Son of Noah, it's the boat guy. And verse 38, the son of Seth. So son of Seth, that's after Abel died, Adam and Eve's uh, son, Abel, who was murdered by Cain. Seth was the next son. Son of Adam the Son of God. This genealogy here highlights that Jesus is indeed a son of Adam. He is going to represent humanity in the same way that Adam did in the garden. Adam sinned and all of humanity sinned with him. And now we are all under that condemnation. But Jesus is entering on to the scene here to fix what Adam did. Jesus is going to be the better Adam who will resist sin in our place rather than give in to it like our first father did. So Jesus is the son of Adam who represents sinners. I think that's why the genealogy is here. And that's all we're going to say about the genealogy. Happy to pass on information to any of you who want to study it further. What we're going to see now in our second point is this. That Satan tempts this son of Adam. Satan tempts this son of God. And we're going to see this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Before we read it, I just want to highlight a couple other things. That Jesus here is going to be tempted by the devil himself. And what we're going to see is we're going to, we're going to see an, an example of how to resist temptations of the evil one. But we're also going to see that Jesus here is going to be proven to be the perfect substitute on the cross. Because if if Jesus fails this, if he sins here, him going to the cross is going to be of no, no benefit to us. Because Jesus will have his own death penalty to pay for. But he needs to endure this temptation and every other temptation that he will face through the rest of his life so that he can go to the cross with no death penalty so that he can take yours and mine on his head. Now, for those of you who have been studying ahead, you may have noticed that there's a little bit different order in the temptation accounts of Matthew and Luke. Um, so does that mean that the Bible just contradicts itself and we should throw it out and just go to lunch early? No, not at all. You'll have to remember that, that the authors here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are, are presenting Jesus in particular lights for us. And Luke, as you're going to notice, when you read through his gospel, is less interested in chronological order than Matthew is. And he often presents information in his gospel in thematic order. Still all true, still all happened, but he he reorders it sometimes for emphasis about different things. We'll see that more as we go through the gospel. 
What we notice here is the way that Luke presents these temptations, that these temptations come in increasing um, relevance for Gentiles. It's going to start with hunger, and then move to raw power, and then fame and renown. Those things, kind of in increasing order, would have resonated for a Gentile audience, and I suspect that's the reason that he ordered them this way. So let's watch it unfold. Satan tempts the son of Adam, the son of God. Verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So Jesus was fully divine, still is fully divine, has always been fully divine. But in some mysterious way, as he is incarnated and there at his baptism, he, he limits his divine power in such a way that as a man, he fully relies upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' ministry is carried out in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit in some sort of, of mysterious way. Philippians 2 tells us that he, he limits himself. Not sure that all of what that means, but certainly something to ponder on. But one of the things that's really important to notice here that we, we caught in verse 1 is that what is about to happen in this showdown between Jesus and the devil is that this is a divine appointment. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit here tempts him, but he puts him, he leads him to the place where he will be tested and tempted. Now, one other thing just to note on this is to notice when this comes. This comes on the heels of his baptism. Just an important note for, for, for you as you're serving God and you're walking with God. Spiritual highs are very often, if not most often, followed by great times of testing. To where God has worked in your life and he has used you or some miraculous thing has happened and you have seen it and you're like, praise the Lord. And then Satan wants to come in and say, oh, really? Just know that that is a a normal pattern. Well, one other thing as we get ready to look at these three temptations, that in all three of these temptations, Satan is going to offer Jesus something that are the same things that he offered Adam and Eve. We're going to see that he's going to go after the the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life with Jesus in the same way that he did with Adam and Eve. But Jesus is going to resist. Watch verse 3 here. This is your first temptation, the temptation of the flesh. The devil said to him, to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And we just read that after 40 days, Jesus was hungry, right? So as as Satan went at Adam and Eve, by showing them that the fruit was good for food, so here he goes after Jesus. 
Now, twice in these temptations, you're going to notice that Satan begins his temptation by saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, now why do you think Satan does that? Twice he's going to do it. See, one of the things you need to know about the tempter is that his, his arrows of temptation are always aimed at the heart. There's nothing that Jesus delighted in more than being the Son of the Father. It was the greatest joy. He loved that. And Satan knows what his greatest joy is, and he goes right at it. If, if you are really the Son of God, right? I mean, does, does a father really know you anymore? I mean, you guys aren't relating like you were for all of eternity past. Down here, doesn't, doesn't he seem to be treating you a little differently than he used to? Seems that he's forgotten you out here in the wilderness, huh? Sure don't hear his voice much out here, do we? That communion's a little dry out here, isn't it? He's aiming to, to try to stir distrust in Jesus' heart. Did God really say? Satan's aims are always at getting you to distrust the goodness of God. Aren't you tired of being hungry out here, Jesus? Aren't you tired of being alone out here? You know, there's a way. To dis- you can escape all of this discomfort if you want to. I mean, you have the power in you, don't you? I mean, you are the Son of God, right? At the heart of what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do here is he, he's trying to get him to lay aside dependence upon the Father. He, he, he's tempting Jesus to become his own caregiver. To rely on his own power to provide for himself. Satan comes at us in much the same way, doesn't he? More on us later. Verse 4. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus makes really clear that his, his comfort is not his top priority. Something is more precious to him than bread in a basket. For Jesus, he'll say elsewhere in the Gospel of John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. You see, Jesus has no desire other than to do what the Father has called Him to do. Jesus says, that's my food. I don't have to live, or I don't have to eat, and I don't have to live, but I'm going to obey the Father. And you notice how Jesus answers Him. In your Bible there, you may notice that uh, man shall not live by bread alone is in quotations. And some of your Bibles, there may be a little note there that tells you that that's a quote from Scripture. He, he, he quotes here from the book of Deuteronomy, the law of God, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It's this section where we, 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 we notice that Israel, Israel ate manna by faith. And they were, they were trusting God to provide as He promised that He would. Because he promised that he would sustain them all the way to the promised land. And Israel grumbled about that provision that the Father gave him. Do you remember that? 
manna, this, this bread from heaven? Like, why does God keep giving us bread from heaven? We liked our bread in slavery, thank you. Slavery wasn't so bad, was it? I mean, you know, we had Del Frisco's back there, and we had whatever else it is we love. We had leeks and onions, and we had buffets, and we had everything with them, some seasoning, and yeah. But out here, all we've got is bread from heaven. Even if you get bread from heaven, we will be tempted to grumble against God. It's just in us. But it wouldn't be in Jesus. Jesus says, I will not, I will not grumble against the provision of the Father, and I will not grumble against his timing. Jesus knew that he would not die in the wilderness. He knew it because the Father said, we got plans. So because of that, he held to the promise and he was willing to endure discomfort. And he passed the first temptation. Temptation number two then. Temptation of the eyes. Verses five through eight. And the devil took him, Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will if you then will worship me it will all be yours no one knows exactly how Satan did this this panorama, as it were, of all the kingdoms of the world. We don't know exactly what sense all authority had been given to him. He's called the God of this world. There's some real sense in which Adam, when he sinned, gave authority over to Satan and part of God's, God's plan. There's lots of discussion about all of that. That's not the point here. The point here is what, what Satan is trying to do to Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus to lose sobriety. He's trying to get Jesus to get it twisted in his head. He's trying to get Jesus a little fuzzy. You see, he he did the same thing with Adam and Eve when he, he helped them see that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. It's, it, it looks so good, doesn't it? And and. and You know, God's holding out on you. You really do want to know the difference between good and evil, don't you? It's not that bad. You'll love it. You'll know so much more. Here he's showing Jesus the glories of the kingdom of the world. And Satan tempts him by saying, All you got to do, all you got to do is bend a knee to me. Why don't, you, why don't you submit to me rather than this oh-so-difficult plan that the Father has for you? I mean, I'll make you king. I'll make you king if you make me your God. I'll play, I'll play, I'll play, Daddy. It's fine, I'll do that for you. And you know what? I won't even make you go to the cross. You see, Satan is is promising Jesus here a crown without a cross. That's what's behind this. All this is Jesus' already. If 
right? He keeps going and trusting. It's already his. He gave it, surrendered it, come down. He, but he didn't, Jesus didn't come to just, if he just wanted the kingdom, he could have just kept it and never left glory. But he wants the kingdom filled with, with us for the glory of the Father and the good of sinners like us that he would come to rescue. But Satan says, hey, 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 listen. You, you, you don't have to suffer, Jesus. I'll treat you good. There's no, there's no cross on my itinerary for you. you. You can take the easy way out. You, you don't have to take those beatings. You don't have to get spit on by those people you created. You don't have to endure them slapping you in the face and saying, prophesy, son of man, who smacked you? You don't have to endure that. You don't have to wear that crown of thorns and have them dress you up in a purple robe and dance around you and mock you. You don't have to do that on my watch. I'll treat you better. You don't have to have your hands pierced by those those nails. You're a king, right? You deserve better. I'll treat you better. He made you give up all that glory? I got glory for you right here. It's all yours. I'd never do that to you. I've got a I've got a much better path for you. Now, if Jesus, if Jesus folds here and gives in, you just got to know there's no hope for humanity. Everybody goes to hell. Because there's going to be no Savior left to take our sins. Because all of us have sin that we have committed that we are guilty for and we will be judged for. We need a sinless Savior to come and rescue us. And if Jesus folds here, there's no hope for humanity. And, and, and you've got to not, you've got to just pause and meditate here and know that this, this was not a, an easy temptation to endure. Because you're going to remember, this is the same temptation that Satan is still working all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember what Jesus was wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he was sweating drops of blood about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if you are willing, take this cup. Take it from me. The cross, and not just the, not the physical the cross is certainly a, a horrific way to be tortured to death, but we're talking about the cup of the wrath of the Father that's going to fall on him that Satan said, you don't have to do it. That's terrifying. And Jesus knows the weight of that. Same temptation that Satan, he's going to play that. He's going to play that chord a lot. Well, verse 8, Jesus answered him, it is written, It is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Another quotation you'll notice there from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 13. This comes from where Moses warned the people that they would be tempted to forget God when they got into the promised land and experienced blessing. And they did. They turned after other gods and they gave worship to them. But Jesus here will not do that. You see, Jesus did what Israel and Adam did not do. 
He remained faithful to the Father here, even when enticing promises were given to him. One other note, just observation there, before we move on to to the third temptation. Did you notice what else Satan offered him there? Um, Verse 6, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. Tempts him with glory. Do you remember what Hebrews 12 says, though? He says the reason Jesus resisted this temptation and other temptations and he endured the cross was for the joy that was set before him. You see, for Jesus, there was something before him that awaited him that was worth suffering anything in this life in in order to to get back. And what was that? Well, in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying there, he prays to the Father about the way they used to share glory together before the foundation of the world. Jesus' greatest delight was sharing in the glory of the Father, that glory that he set aside for a season to come and get us and to take us so that we would know that glory forevermore. That joy of sharing in the Father's glory again and having us to be able to see the glory of the Father, that was greater joy for Jesus than anything Satan ever could have offered him. That is one of the things that guarded Jesus' heart as the God-man that kept him tethered to reality is that there was a better joy laid before him. Remember, Satan is always coming at you with promises of happiness apart from God. That's what a temptation is. It's just a, a promise of happiness apart from God's way. Third temptation, verse 9. The temptation of pride. He, Satan, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. Verse 11, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan tempted Jesus here to prove that God was with him. He starts quoting the Psalms to him. God's with you, isn't He? He tempts him to prove that God was with him, not by waiting for him to be raised from the dead, but by taking things into his own hands and jumping off the temple and forcing the Father's hand to exalt him by sending angels all of a sudden down to grab him and raise him up in front of everybody in Jerusalem. See, Satan knows that the Father's not going to let you crash down off the pinnacle, is he? So why don't you just hop off and watch all the angels from heaven swoop down and grab you and everybody will be amazed. Exalt yourself, Jesus. Come on. It's yours, isn't it? Aren't you tired of waiting out here where it's hard and cold at night and hot during the day? Aren't you tired of not hearing praise like you did from the angels? Why wait so long, Jesus? Why be, why be killed and then raised from the dead? Why not just take the shortcut? God promises to care for you, right? 
Well, just as Satan tempted Adam and Eve to be wise in their own eyes and to misunderstand what God had said to them, Satan tries this with Jesus. Important note here. Satan knows the Bible too. Satan knows the Bible too. And he knows how to twist it. See, listen, y'all. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can make the Bible say absolutely anything you want it to say. I mean, I remember I was in a theology class in... Um, at Virginia Tech and they were using it to show that in Ezekiel that aliens were real you just you can make it say anything you want you see Satan knows how to twist it to get you confused and this is actually one of his favorite ways to deceive people to use the truth of God's word in false ways with the intent of destroying your faith You see, I spend my days studying God's Word so that I can do good to my soul and my family's soul and to your soul. So this this is a product of me sitting at a desk, drinking too much coffee, reading, praying, studying, looking things up, asking questions of other friends, emailing people, saying, what do you think about this? wrestling with things so that we can come and I can do good to you. Which if I ever stop that, you need to fire me. That's that's the only reason that I'm alive. And if I start lying to you about God, you someone tackle me and carry me out and get a pastor who will tell you the truth, please. Satan studies the scriptures to do you harm. He hears God's word and he says, oh, if we frame it like this, if we take some of those promises from the Old Testament, right, and we can, yeah, let's, let's say, yeah, God, let's see here, God, he has wonderful plans for you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for prosperity. Let's take that one, and let's make them, let's tell them what that means is that if you just have enough faith, that God will give you prosperity. I won't tell them what prosperity is, but, but we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to tell them that. And then you can, you can shackle them in that with shame and guilt by if prosperity's not showing up, then you can just tell them that they don't believe enough, so they need to give more money, which will fund this kingdom of darkness. He's crafty. Or, or tell them this. You're being tempted by sin, or maybe you compromise some in sin. Hey, listen, God's going to forgive you, so you might as well just go ahead and do it and ask for forgiveness afterwards. He's faithful, right? He's always been faithful. Now, listen, you, you don't want to be legalistic. You see all those verses about legalism. It's so dangerous, isn't it? So don't, don't be disciplined then. Just say, well, I'll read my Bible whenever the Spirit moves, and I'll pray whenever the Spirit moves. Tempt them away from discipline. Call discipline legalism. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or tell them, highlight for them the fact that God's sovereign over everything. 
and use that to make them think that prayer actually doesn't matter. Then why pray, right? I mean, God's got it all figured out anyway. Why evangelize? God's going to save who he's going to save, right? Satan is crafty. But Jesus knew the Bible better than Satan. And I think we ought to learn from him. This is one of the reasons we study the Bible and grow in discernment. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but, um, and I can pass on an article to you about this. It's pretty interesting. But the way that, uh, that agents learn to spot counterfeits, counterfeit dollar bills, the way that you do this is by studying the real thing. You sit down all day long, and you hold it, and you look at it, and you feel the texture, and you see the different kinds of ink, and you hold it, and you twist it, and you show the different things, and you look at all these, and you study it so well so that whenever a counterfeit comes across, and you can just feel it, and you're like, that's a different kind of cotton. That border's not right. That print is off line. Because you've studied the original so well, you, you know it is the same for, for us in our studying of God's Word. I don't think it's ultimately wise for us to study every kind of counterfeit idea that's out there. You could, I think, I mean, I, I've really, two, two years of my life I studied cults. Two years of my early Christian life I studied cults. I learned a lot about cults. I can tell you everything you want to know about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. But I think it would have been better studying the Bible, which I did at that time too, but because then what happens is when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or, you know, some secret society like the Masons or whatever it may be or, or even a politician starts using the Bible or whatever it may be, you can hear and discern that's not quite right. And then you can go to the Word and, and seek truth. Well, that's what Jesus does here. Verse 12. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting here Deuteronomy 6.16 where Moses refers back to Exodus 17 where Israel grumbled because God wasn't caring for them in, in the timing or the way that they desired. And they sinfully asked, is the Lord with us or not? You see, but Jesus knew the Father was with him. And he knew his plan and his timing were perfect. And he wouldn't grumble against the Father nor short circuit his timing for exaltation. So here Jesus resisted. He resisted for 40 days, and he resisted the devil by quoting God's word. Just as Israel wandered 40 years because they didn't obey God's word, Jesus here relies on the law where Israel rejected it. Israel was fed, but Jesus fasted. Jesus is the new and true Israel, and he is the better Adam. Every place that Adam and Eve fell for these temptations in the garden Jesus resisted on our behalf. James 4, 7 says it this way, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Jesus did this. In verse 13, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Just note that Satan didn't quit. He persisted in his assaults, yet Jesus never yielded all the way to his death, where he died on the cross as a sinless man. And he went into the grave and he rose victorious over Satan and over sin and over death. And now he promises that anyone who will repent, who will turn from their sin and trust in him and cling to him, that they will be forgiven 
of their sins and reconciled to the Father. And that relationship it was broken and has been broken for so long and shows its way, itself in so many ways that it can be, you can be reconciled to the Father and know Him. That happens through Jesus, the perfect Son of Adam, the perfect Son of God. But now as we walk with Jesus, one of the things that doesn't stop is temptation. The evil one continues to come at us with temptations. So I want to take just, just a couple moments. I want to highlight how we should think about temptation as believers in light of Jesus' example in the way that he resisted temptation. This is our third point, that Jesus, our Savior, Jesus is our Savior in temptation. He is our Savior in temptation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Just hear these words. See if it sounds familiar. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The Apostle John tells us that that Satan comes at us with the exact same types of temptations that he came at Adam and Eve with and he came at Jesus with. These are the ones that Jesus resisted that Adam and Eve did not and that all of us in varying ways have not resisted either. There are desires of the flesh that we face all the time, whether it be for money or sexual fulfillment or entertainment in ways that are outside God's design. He tempts our eyes for power, authority, envy that Merck prayed about, escaping hard things. He tempts our pride in such ways that we would always be skeptical of others, that we would be unforgiving, that we would be bitter toward others. You see, Satan tempts us all, though not all the same in the same way. Some of us are lured more by shiny things, where others are lured more by subtle things. Some temptations will call us high in our thinking, where we, we will always be thinking, well, I'm right, or they're wrong, or I'm better, and they're stupid, and, and you may not think you think like that until you think of how you've interacted with people on the, inter, on the internet all week. Then some call us low, Right? There's the fear of the unknown, there's anxiety about health or money or relationships, there's despair, there's temptations to just despair and give up and think there's no reason to live anymore. But all temptations, whether they call us high or low, whether they're subtle or shiny, all temptations have one aim and that is to call us away from God. To disbelieve that He loves you. To disbelieve that he can actually forgive you for wherever you've been. To disbelieve that he is actually good. I've said it before, but I think for this congregation, I think on the whole, most people will be trusting in general that God is in control and that he's sovereign. But I find that many of us, including myself, are tempted to disbelieve that he's actually good. That he's actually a good father who is always doing good things, even in the midst of very hard things. I could go on and on about the different types of temptations, but but what should we do? 
Well, we need to go to Jesus. We need to go to Jesus before, during, and after temptation. So before temptation comes, go to Jesus. What I mean by that is this, that we must cultivate a deep, abiding, personal relationship with Jesus. Now, it may sound strange to some of you, but what we mean by that is that by faith, there is daily abiding with Him, where we read the Word and we consider how it applies in light of who He is, that we pray and we talk to the Father in His name. And, but it's not just that, but it's also a moment-by-moment awareness of his presence. Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you, do you, as it were, practice his presence? I believe it was Brother Lawrence who wrote a book about that. I'd be wrong on that. Practicing his presence, the awareness that Jesus is there with you through everything you think, do, and say every moment of the day. Do you constantly have it on your mind that you need to be drawing near to him for your affections to be growing for him, praying for that to happen, applying word in light of that? Because as that happens, your desire for sin decreases. As you change your diet, you will change your appetite. This is why we feast upon Christ by faith. It's why you fast from sinful indulgences. Because over time, and this is not a type thing, but over time of walking with him, he changes what you love. It's a process of days and weeks and months and years and an entire life. Also, in before the temptation, going to Jesus. So we go with him in abiding, but we also we need to be mindful to ask for help in seeing the devil's schemes. Do you know how and when you're most temptable? Do you know what your weaknesses are? Satan seemed to know exactly what chord to play for Jesus. Get out of this, get out of this, get out of this. What measures can you put in place to help you to resist sin? I encourage you, if that's not something that you spent time thinking about, ways that you're tempted and ways to put proactively things in place. Like there's particular sins that I'm, I'm given to that I have put so many barriers in place that I have to like literally climb over fence after fence after fence to try and get to a sin so that in the midst of that I've prayed, God, show me sobriety in the midst of that. Show me what I'm doing. Set those things up to guard you. And finally, under this, pray, Lord, this is a good prayer to pray in regards to before temptation. Lord, help me to feel now What I will feel then if I give in to this sin. Help me to feel now what I will feel then if I give in to this sin. Give me sobriety. Help me to see past the temptation to see what it will cost. Because you've got to wonder if Adam and Eve could have seen what it would cost. How it would change things. So, before temptation, go to Jesus. Secondly, during temptation, go to Jesus. During temptation, go to Jesus. You've got to remember that you are in a war. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So when you feel the pull of sin on your heart, plead with him for sobriety. Now don't, don't feed it. 
don't, don't try and take a little nibble and say, is that really as good as it sounds? Don't do that because when you, when you feed it, it only gets stronger. And sobriety dissipates more quickly. So cry out to him. God, I need your power. Stop what you are doing and pray. For those of you who are, who are tempted by, um, yeah, by, by, by pornography, close your computer and get on your face. You will not look at pornography if you are on your face in prayer. If you're at work and the temptation is coming at you, go to the bathroom, close the door, and cry out to God. If you're at home, maybe you need to get out of the house. Walk around the neighborhood and pray. Open the, open the, the blinds. Turn on light. Turn on lights if it's at nighttime. Let light in. Cry out for help. Grab promises. We do not have a high priest, says Hebrews 4, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at a time of need. Have promises that you cling to. And with this, going to Jesus during temptation, cling to his people. Here's what I mean by that. I don't know exactly what this would look like for you, but I have brothers in my life, and my wife serves in this same way, that in the, in the heat of the moment, whether it be pride or anger or lust or fear or anxiety, I will text brothers. And I will say, I'll text them or I'll email them or I'll call them, and I'll say, right now I'm feeling tempted. Pray for me. There's something that happens when you get it in the light doesn't automatically just go away, but it loses some power. Confess your weakness to one another. And then thirdly, after the temptation, go to Jesus. Once the battle has subsided, go to him again. Go to him in praise for whatever obedience he helped you to live out. Now, don't deceive yourself into thinking, like, if you, if you really gave into some temptation, but you didn't, like, go out and, you know, do something a, a, even more atrocious, don't just be like, well, Jesus, thank you for helping me to just not do that and ignore the grievous sin that was committed against the Lord. But, but if, if he gives you help for obedience, praise him and thank him. There was a time this week that I felt tempted, and I just, I, I just resisted, sent out flyers for help, and then I praised God. Thank you for helping me. So I, I share that with you because I want you to know some of you feel like you're facing temptations that you will just never be able to actually make it through by the grace of God and get on the other side and say, I lived. It is possible by the grace of God. His spirit will empower you to do that. So praise him. But also go to him and plead for him to forgive you in whatever compromise may have occurred. Go to Jesus and receive mercy. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I preach this sermon that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And his name is Jesus. And he's the righteous one who endured all the temptations of Satan 
and did not compromise so that he can rightly represent you before the throne of grace that you may receive help in your time of need. Go to Jesus because he is the son of Adam who represents us and he is the son of God who rescues us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the promises that are in it. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who remember Jesus. That we would look to him and we would rejoice for him who is righteous in our place. That we would trust in him and delight in him and God, that we would lean upon him. Father, would you fill us with the same spirit that Christ had and empower us to to resist the temptations of the evil one. And Father, we pray that you would help us to not do this alone, but that God, you would give us grace to reach out to other brothers and sisters in this congregation and to receive helpful, appropriate accountability and assistance in resisting the evil one. God, might you make this church holy. Would you make us pure? Would you help us to walk in obedience to the glory of your name? Help us to see the tempter's lies, but to believe the shepherd's promises. Lord, use even our time around the table now to that end. In the name of Jesus, amen.